fall into the theology bit. All right, everyone, it's time for another edition of The Theology Pit, Theology Out of Pittsburgh. That's right, my name is Samson Kovach, I'm your host, and when you fall into the bottomless pit, you'll die of starvation, but this is a theological pit, and we want to keep you well-fed. We're not going to let you starve in here. We're going to talk about things um, that, you know, a lot of Christians don't like to talk about. We're going to talk about things that religious people don't like to talk about. We're going to talk about just different, interesting, fun things. Um, things that, uh, for example, later on in the pit and later on broadcast, one of the things we're going to be talking about are things like, um, you know, the Gospel of Thomas, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Shepherd of Hermes, those sort of things that people always say, well, you know, when discussing the Bible, how do you know that you have the right books? I mean, wasn't there just a group of people that chose which books go in there? And what about these other books? Well, when people say that, you know, you kind of ask them, have you ever read those other books? Do you know what they say? Because uh, when you read them, you look at them and say, oh, well, yeah, maybe they don't belong in there. And uh, we'll discuss not only the content and the writing style and those sort of things, but the time that they came about. So that's an example of the type of things in the theology pit that we want to talk about. Now, when you talk about Christianity as a whole, I got to tell you, it's, it's, it's a huge topic. Whenever you are discussing uh, Christian principles, whenever you're discussing um, uh, Christian doctrine, Christian ideas with someone who is a Christian or somebody who might not be a Christian, everybody has an opinion of what Christianity actually is and what Christianity is supposed to say. And uh, salvation is really the, the key central aspect of the Christian faith. And on this pit, we're going to talk about, you know, what what that is, what we mean by salvation. Problem here that we come into is that, well, when you talk about salvation, you know, first off, you know, what is salvation? What do you mean by salvation? Like, you know, uh, how do you how, how do you articulate it properly? The problem that you run into is that each denomination has a different order of salvation. They have a different articulation of salvation. They have a different way that the atonement of Christ is applied to you. And this can become problematic because uh, somebody that might come from a different background than you are, uh, and you're trying to explain to them or talk to them about salvation, you're discussing it, they're saying, no, that's not true because this tradition says this. Now, when you look at uh, Christianity, and, and try and think of Christianity in the same way that you think about other belief systems, you think about other religions, you think about other ideas, and what you'll generally do is, if you want to know something about it, you usually gravitate towards the most popular. Now, the most popular might not be the most accurate, the most articulate, or it might not be the one that the person you're talking to actually holds to. Uh, think about in the realm of atheism, okay? Let's say that you wanted to look at atheism. Uh, years back, I did a lecture on atheism and, and what we called the new atheism that was coming out. And part of this new atheism uh, was looking at who, who at the time were called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know? Um, 
They were uh, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. Now, out of those four, I would say that probably the most famous and the most popular, the one with the most books, the one who's had the most influence would be Richard Dawkins. Um, But Richard Dawkins doesn't speak for all atheists. And a lot of times, all atheists don't agree with what he has to say and, and the way that he is saying it. Sorry, I had to slurp a little coffee there. Um, he articulates a brand of atheism, a form of atheism, which is different than what Daniel Dennett talks about and what he says. And it's different than what Sam Harris says atheism is. And it's different than what Christopher Hitchens says atheism is. So you might be talking to an atheist that more falls in the philosophy of Christopher Hitchens, which is very postmodern, which is very emotional driven. And he is not out to actually do things like try to disprove the Bible or he wasn't, he's passed away since, but he's not, he wasn't out to disprove the Bible. He was out to just show that it's irrational and illogical to believe in religion, any, any type of religion. He wasn't just saying just Christianity, just any type of religion. And he'd make very emotional and very passionate arguments where um, Richard Dawkins sticks with more of a, uh, a naturalist philosophical argument, um, more of the um, Carl Sagan's, more of the, uh, the universe is all there was, all there is, and all there's going to be. Those would be the type of arguments that, that he would w- make, where Daniel Dennett would make a lot more Somewhat philosophical arguments. He is a a professional philosopher by trade. He teaches philosophy. Um, His book, Breaking the Spell, um, talks about uh, religion as a natural phenomena. Um, He would discuss more about the way people go about believing and why they believe and how most believers don't really believe. And he does make a good point in in his book that people have a faith in faith and not a faith in God. And that's that's a very good depiction of a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians have faith in their faith, but they don't have faith in God. Not to say that none of them have faith in God, but where their faith is located is in this faith. It's not located in God. And some of them, we would call them uh, biblical, uh, bibli adulterers. I think that'd be the right word. People who worship the Bible and not the God of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that these people don't believe in God or don't worship God or, or anything like that. What I'm saying is that their main focus of faith is in something other than God. Now, is that problematic within the Christian church? Well, I I would say yes. Is it detrimental catastrophically to their salvation? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in in this pit. Uh, Some people would say yes, and some people would say no. And the reason why is because of how they believe someone is saved, their order of salvation, what they think about 
how Christ's atonement is in fact applied to them. And that, that, that's a super huge deal because if, as a lot of Protestants say, you are justified by faith alone. Now, why did I say justified and not saved? Why did I not say you are, you are saved by faith alone? The reason why is because when we say salvation, and this is where the different denominations and the different uh, churches uh, look at things and, and how they view things. When we, when we say salvation, it has a past, has a present, and it has a future. These three parts encompass all of salvation. Now, we use the word salvation or saved synonymously with, with all of these. Um, and uh, there's a theological reason behind it, but I don't think it's a theological reason that people understand whenever they are actually talking about these things. The past sense of salvation is called justification. Everything is in the past tense in, in justification. You are justified. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be made just? What does it mean to be made right with God? Um, that's where we're going to focus on this edition of the Theology Pit. The next edition, we'll get into sanctification, which is the present day one. But we're going to touch on sanctification a little bit because we need it to contrast the past tense justification of salvation. And some denominations actually have the two things working together. You are being sanctified and you're being justified at the same time. The third part, the future part, is called glorification. Now, the glorification is when you are... Uh, it, it's possible for you not to sin. You no longer sin. You're a new creation. You don't sin anymore. And there are some people that hold to that. They would say that, yes, we have been saved, sanctified, sanctified. I don't think that they would use the word glorified, though. A lot of, you find this more in the restorationist churches rather than in the uh, reformed churches or the Protestant churches or the uh, Catholic or the Greek churches. More in the restorationist that... Um, if you actually do sin, then that shows that you aren't saved, that you don't have faith because you have not been brought into that completion. And that's the only way. So there are some denominations out there that actually say that the glorification process needs to take place in order for your salvation to be total, in order for you to be saved. So when we talk about this, uh, we're, when I'm talking about salvation with this one, I'm going to make the distinction with salvation between justification and sanctification and glorification just so that we know what all that means, okay? So when we talk about salvation, one of the first things that we have to discuss is um, uh, what is salvation? I mean, what is it? What are we being saved from? You know, I mean, I've kind of already laid out that salvation is an event because it's past tense and it's a process, which is present tense, in which people are ultimately brought in a right relationship with God. And that's the key thing, that you're brought into a right relationship with God. It's a very vertical relationship between you and God. Um, it's God doing something on your behalf. But the way that that then gets given to you, the way that that gets applied to you, 
that's where the debates and discussions come in because you might go into a place and they ask you if you are saved. Now, if you come from a background or a denomination that says, well, in order for you to be saved past tense, that means that you are no longer committing sin. You are no longer doing these things. What these people are asking ultimately by are you saved They're asking if you've been justified. And if you've been justified, then you're being sanctified. So when they ask, have you been justified? Are you saved? Past tense, justified. The largest Christian denomination in the world would say, no, I have not been saved past tense. I am being saved. I am in that process. And that's the Roman Catholic Church. That's their understanding of it, that... You are being saved because of the work that God is doing in you. You are not presently saved. So why is this a problem? Why is this a problem for Protestants? I mean, Protestants look at that and say, well, how can you say that? Well, let's logically look at it. Let's, let's take a step back and say, what, what are you saying and does it make any sense? Okay, so a Protestant would say that... What you are actually being saved from is sin and death. Christ's atonement on the cross then covered your sins and it saved you from the sting of death. And you ask them, have you stopped sinning? And they usually would say, well, no, of course not. If they're honest, Um, you don't want to talk to any dishonest people say, no, I don't sin anymore. It's impossible. They would say, well, yeah, of course I still sin. All right, so you still sin. Are you going to sin tomorrow? Yeah, I'm going to sin tomorrow. Okay, are you going to sin a week from now? Are you going to sin? Well, yeah, I'm I'm probably going to sin for the rest of my life. Okay, then how are you saved, past tense, and your sins are forgiven if you're still sinning? You also say that you are saved, and I know that, and that's just a rhetorical question. I will, I will answer that. But you also say that you are saved from death, okay? Are you planning on dying? Well, yeah, I'm planning on dying. Okay, then, how is it that you have been saved, past tense, from sin and death if you are still sinning, present tense, and you are going to sin and die, future tense? That doesn't sound like you've actually been saved. So how are you understanding this, you know? Well, they would say, well, because of Christ, I know that I have this promise. And if you have that promise, well, then that promise is something in the future. So how are you using it past tense? And a lot of times people would say, well, if it's past tense, I can claim it as now. And I think that that's true. I I honestly do. I think that if you believe in God and you believe that God says something and it hasn't come to fruition yet, but everything else that he has said actually has, then you can trust it as an already done deal. You can say that, yes, this has already been taken care of. And he gives us, you know, scriptural reassurance for this. Um, Christ's resurrection is a reassurance of this. These things are going to happen. But then people would say things like, okay, well, when were you saved? And the question there has always been 
salvation happens at a moment in time and we spend the rest of our life trying to figure out what happened at that moment. So if somebody were to say, when were you saved? And you could say, well, I don't know. Well, somebody might then come back at you and say, well, then you weren't saved. I know the day I was saved. I walked the aisle. I confessed my sins. I repented, which meant I turn away from all sins. I've repented of them. And that day I was born again, maybe in the church I was in, I was baptized and therefore I was saved. I actually have a salvation birthday. And you would say, well, that's nice, but I don't have an experience like that. Now, depending on the denomination, some of them might say, well, then you weren't really saved. Then you actually have to get saved. Uh, Some would say that when it comes to baptism, the baptism is what saves you. And you can't be baptized as a child because you don't know what you were doing. So therefore, you're not saved. You need to be baptized. Now, the problem with this sort of thing is that, first off, it puts all of the uh, action on you. God's not actually saving you. You're actually saving yourself through God. God is the means by which you can save yourself. That's what's occurring here. And a lot of denominations, and I would argue scripture itself, says that that's wrong. That you cannot save yourself that only God can save you. And some would say, well, God is saving me by actually making it possible for me to be saved. You know, it's, it's that he gives me this ability. He gives me this, some have called it prevenient grace. He gives me the balancing of the scales of good and evil that I actually can make a decision on this. And I, I would, find that to be wrong, but I am very reformed in my views. I I guess technically I'm a reformed Catholic, not that I was Catholic. I was raised Anglican or Episcopalian in America. And what that is, if you don't know, it's basically Catholic with half the guilt. Um, My wife always calls it Episcopatholic or something like that. It is very Catholic in look and in nature. But since then, I have um, taken the understanding of salvation being monogistic in this sense. And now what you have to ask people whenever they say, well, you have to do this or you have to do that or you have to do this. There has to be this moment in time. I would always ask them, well, when we look at scripture, when was somebody like Paul saved? And they would say, well, on the road to Damascus, he was saved because he was blinded by the light and you could see that and, you know, that whole story. And there definitely was a moment in time. Okay. Well, what about Peter? They would say, well, it's kind of harder to nail down. I mean, Peter, you know, maybe when he, you know, admitted that Jesus was the son of God and, uh, at Caesarea Philippi, when they were amongst all these, uh, statues of all these other gods and all these other altars and, and, you know, looking around and he says to them, who do people say that I am? They're saying, well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist, but he says, no, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And the thing is, is that people would say, see that at that moment, when he admitted that he confessed that he became saved. Well, how do saved people act? Do they deny God? Do they deny Jesus to the point where they will 
will call curses down on themselves to deny him? Because that's what he did. He denied Jesus three times after that. And then Jesus restored him three times. And then Peter went on to be a bigot. He did not like Gentiles, groups of, of, of Gentiles. He would even say to them, I think it was at Cornelius's house when he went in there, he said, look, you know that it's not even lawful for me to be here. But God tells me I'm supposed to come and I'm supposed to give the gospel to you. Uh, you know, and it continues on to where he doesn't want to eat with Gentiles whenever Jews are around. And Paul, in the book of Galatians, actually slams him for that. So when was Peter saved? Because your behavior doesn't reflect who and what you are and what God has said about you. So when you say, yes, I'm saved, and I'm saved by faith alone, you'll hear that a lot. That's a, a, one of the, the solas of the Reformation, sola fide. I'm saved by faith alone. What do you mean you're saved by faith alone? Does that mean that as long as I have faith in Christ, I'm saved, but if I don't, I'm not? Some people would say that. Some people would say that, well, I was saved and then I fell away. I backslid. I wasn't saved then, but then I gave myself back to Christ. I gave my life to Christ. I made him the Lord of my life, the Lordship salvation view. And in doing so, I then got saved again. So God seems to have no big part in your life except to have made Christ a token sacrifice that anybody can just look to and anybody can do X, Y, and Z, and then they have saved themselves. You're asking for glory on yourself for saving yourself. I find this to be problematic because the doctrine of justification in the simplest definition is this. You are justified because God says that you are justified. That's it. The doctrine of justification simply tells us what God says about us. Nothing more. God says that we are righteous or have been righteous, that our sins have been forgiven. Now, when God says something, does it actually happen? When God says something, is it true? God spoke in the universe, leapt into existence. God says you are just, you are. End of story. There's nothing that you can do to merit that. God is immutable. He is beyond the ability to change. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind in the same way that we would think that we change our mind because, oh, we believed one thing one way, but then it was shown to be something different and so then we said, oh, okay, I think a different way now. That's not God. God knows. Sometimes when God talks to us, he speaks in ways that we understand. He uses language that we understand. He uses wording that we understand. 
he he will use words like regret and you know as though he didn't know things were going to happen as a type of rhetoric so that we can see the emotion and the passion and the meaning of the topic at hand god hates sin sin must be punished god punished it god came wrapped in human flesh and died on the cross so that sins could be abolished. God is just. He's just as just as he is loving and holy. He can't deny himself. He can't deny his justice. So when he took on the sins of the world and he was raised for our justification and his sacrifice was acceptable, he then declares forensically you to be just. And you are. Now, when we say that we are justified by faith alone or we are saved by faith alone, Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession says it like this, and this is, this is loosely. I probably should go and get the, the, the actual uh, wording of it, but I'm just going to loosely paraphrase here. That we are saved by God's grace for Christ's sake through faith. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Now, faith in this sense is passive. Faith is not active. Martin Luther, when he was thinking about justification and articulating it, it was something that couldn't be merited. At the time, people were buying what were called plenary indulgences from uh, John Tetzel in order to raise money to build uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And what, a, uh, what this was doing was saying that if you purchased one of these plenary indulgences, then it would forgive you of your sins and you could actually purchase them for future sins. You could purchase them lifetime of, of sins. And what you were then doing is taking a monetary value and you were saying, in a way, I can buy off God by doing this. I can merit God's favor by doing this. Now, was everybody who was doing this, buying these indulgences, were they all terrible people? No. Did they actually think that by doing this, they were doing something that was right and that they were meriting God's favor so that he would find favor with them, uh, find, you know, give them grace, distribute grace? Well, yeah, of course they did. They actually thought that because the church at the time were the ones who could distribute grace. And the way that we know that is through the sacramental system that they had. The view of justification that they have is called sanative Think of sanitary. It's a sanitive justification. God pours his grace into you. 
and it cleanses you. It cleanses your heart and it changes you. And that is what saves you. You're being saved. This is why they would never say save past tense because it's an ongoing process. It's a living process. It's a life process. Now, where do you get this grace from that's distributed to you? Well, when Christ died on the cross, because he was sinless, he stored up these merits in heaven. These merits that then could be distributed through the church, and it was done through the sacraments. And this is why they could say at the time, extra ecclesia nullus salut, which means outside of the church, there is no salvation. Because how can there be when the church is the only one that have the sacraments? Now, the, the big sacrament, I wouldn't, well, not to nullify any of the other ones, but the most common sacrament that you see in the Catholic church performed is the Eucharist. Now, what's going on there is that people are eating and drinking Jesus Christ. The bread is his body. The blood is his blood. And whenever you are partaking of the body and blood of Christ, he is entering into your body and that grace is going into you and that grace is cleansing you. It is sanitizing you. You, through the works performed, through the works performed of the priest, changing the elements of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, by the works performed, and the Latin for that is ex opera operato, by the works performed, you are then being saved. So when somebody says that, yes, I am saved by grace and by grace alone, within this understanding, what they're saying is, of course, it's by grace alone. That's the only way. But the way I get them is through doing X, Y, and Z. I may not be exchanging money, but what I am doing is I am meriting God's favor through these actions and actions that I believe he put in place. Now, This might not make sense to Protestants. They might look at this and say, don't people understand that that's not how you do it? That's not how you do it at all. If you want God to bless you, then maybe you have to do something else. Now, they wouldn't say it like that. They would say that they would be under the opinion that if I do the right things, then God will bless me. It's more of a refined way of looking at meriting God's favor. That when my praises go up, his blessings will come down. And in order for me to be blessed and to receive the grace of God, then that's what I need to do. Now, they wouldn't hold to a sanative view, which is interesting, but they do articulate a sanative view. They would say, for example, I need to repent of all of my sins and confess my sins And acknowledge Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then I will be considered a child of God. Then I will be saved. Much more refined. But it's still emeritus work. It's still doing something in order for God to see you as favorable. To look favorably upon you. 
Now, this is no different than paying a plenary indulgence. This is no different than going out and saying, I did this, I purchased this, and therefore, I'm not held accountable. Therefore, I have merited God's favor. I've been forgiven of my sins. And I am being made righteous. Because look at what I'm doing. Now, that may be shocking to some people because they would say, well, no, it's completely different. But if you think about it, it's not completely different. It actually is the same thing. But let's refine it just a little bit further because there are some denominations that would reject all that and say, no, it's absolutely not what it is. What you do is the way that you're saved is that you ask Christ into your heart. You don't have to do it publicly. There's not a big show that you have to do. You just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I trust that you have taken my sins on the cross and have forgiven me. And you, your blood has covered me and I am saved. People would look at that and they would say, I am saved. And it's by God's grace alone. But look at what just happened. It's all based on what they did. It's not based on what God does. It's what they have done to merit God's favor. It's much more refined. It is asking Jesus into my heart and therefore I am saved. Now, what do all of these have in common? Well, that whole understanding, that sanative understanding, that pouring of something in. Something goes in me and then something changes me and my expression outward is then what defines me. That is the opposite, the antithesis of what the doctrine of justification is. Remember, justification simply says what God thinks about or what God says about us. God declares us. So it's all justification is. The doctrine of justification just tells us what God says about us. Nothing in any of those illustrations was God saying anything about the person. It was the person saying about themselves and what they are doing. And the reason why this gets kind of confused is because, especially in Protestantism, now the Catholics, they don't have a problem with this. They say that they are right. This is their doctrine. They don't have an issue with it. Protestants, though, give lip service to being justified by faith alone. But they don't actually hold to being justified by faith alone. And the reason why is because they turn their faith into a work. Okay. Now faith is a gift from God, but when you turn it into a work, then you are doing the same thing by trying to merit God's favor. Now there comes the understanding of what faith is. And we have to get into a little bit of Latin here. Okay. Two kinds of, of faith. Okay. Well, let's define. Well, no, I'm not going to define the second faith yet. I'm, um, we're going to talk about the first faith and then we'll talk about the second faith and then we'll, we'll define it on how it is. But this will fall under sanctification, not justification. The Latin for the first faith that we're going to talk about, we'll call it faith one, is fides qua creditor. Okay, and this is faith by which it is believed. Okay, 
This is a, a personal faith that is given to you, which apprehends the grace of God. Okay. This is faith that comes from God that is then given to you because the, God has declared you to be righteous. Okay. Now the other one is fides quae creditor. Okay. It's the content of faith. So when you say that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that you are covered in his blood and therefore you have been forgiven of your sins and you haven't been made right with God, that is fides quae creditor. Okay. The difference between the two is actually the uh, letter E uh, between qua and quae. Now, this difference is huge, though, because the second one, the content of our faith, the one that we exercise, this is the one that goes under sanctification, what we do, the way we behave, who we are. But because it's the one that we most identify with, it's the one that we then impose into justification. Whenever... God talked to Abraham and he said to him that he counted his faith as righteousness. He credited credited it to him as righteousness. He made him righteous. Paul brings that out in the book of Romans when he talks about how we're justified. In Romans chapter 4, What we have is this illustration of justification here. I'll read it. It says, and this is out of the New English translation, the Net Bible. What then shall we say that Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh, has discovered regarding this matter? For if Abraham was declared righteous by the works of the law, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his pay is not credited due to grace, but due to obligation. But to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. So even David himself speaks regarding the blessedness of man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will never count sin. Now, what's being said here is that faith is credited to Abraham as righteousness. This faith is not Abraham's faith. How do we know this? How do we know that it's not Abraham's faith? Because when you go back into the book of Genesis, it doesn't really say that. The way that we know is that this is chapter four of the book of Romans. Paul has just spent the beginning of the book of Romans talking about how no one is just, no one is righteous. There are none that search for God. He sets it up to say that it is impossible for anybody to have faith in God. They, you can't do it because, because nobody would search for it. Nobody would want to do it. For him to then switch gears in the middle of that thought and say, well, Abraham had faith and then it was credited to him as righteousness. 
that would be a schism in thought. Paul's actually telling us how we should read the book of Genesis when it comes to that understanding of fides qua creditor, that it's the faith that God has given that then justifies Abraham. So when we say that we are saved by faith alone, sola fide, or we are justified by faith alone, we have to understand that it is a forensic declaration that God has made in saying that we are righteous. This is why scripture can say the fervent and effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. Because we are made righteous. We are declared to be righteous. Our sins are forgiven. This is why we can say we are saved past tense. But yet we still sin. But yet we still experience death. Martin Luther came up with a uh, little phrase for it, a Latin phrase, simulate usta et peccator. At the same time, I am justified and I am a sinner because God has credited to me for the sake of Christ, righteousness. And it is by the faith that he has given us that we are able to believe. And that is how we know that we are saved. Because the faith that we, that we have, the faith that we exercise, the fides quae creditor, the content of our faith, the things that we say, the things that we do, our orthodoxy, our orthopraxy, orthodoxy is right belief, orthopraxy is our right action, our right practice. That is not completely foreign at all to the faith that God has given us. It's the same faith. We're just exercising it. Why does it look like we struggle with it? Because we are sinful people. Because it is a struggle. God, the Holy Spirit, helps us within that. How do we know that all this has happened in the past? How do we know that it's all past tense? Well, look at the way scripture words things. When we jump ahead to... Romans chapter 5. Paul puts it this way, starting with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, notice all the past tense words there. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Now notice that again, more past tense stuff. We have also obtained access. How we obtain the access by faith. Okay. How have we gotten this faith? It's all past tense. God has given it to us. We continue on in verse six, chapter five of Romans, where it says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In the verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than because we have now been declared past tense, righteous by his blood. We will be saved future tense through him from God's wrath. Now, the reason why we are saved 
is for Christ's sake. If Christ was good enough, we are saved. This is why the Augsburg Confession words it, that we are saved by God's grace for Christ's sake through faith. Faith is passive. Faith is the instrument that God uses. But it's for the sake of Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. If Jesus was good enough, you are saved. Past tense. You are justified. It's monogistic. It is God working alone as opposed to synergistic us and God working together, which is sanctification, which is God, the Holy Spirit working in us. But if Christ was good enough, you are justified by faith alone. This is the distinction in salvation when you look at the different denominations and you look at the different doctrines that are out there. Now, this articulation came about in... I would say roughly around 1617, somewhere around them, or 1517, excuse me, 100 years off, 1517, 1519, maybe when it was fully articulated, but, but it was Martin Luther who uh, uh, discovered this. Being trained as a lawyer, he's looking at uh, studying through Romans, and, and you can see the legalese that comes in there. It's, it's, it's like a court case. You know, God is declaring you to be righteous. He is... Uh, conveying that on, uh, upon you. Christ's atonement, his life is imputed to you. His righteousness is imputed to you. It's an alien righteousness, but it's no less yours. And it's because of his faithfulness that you are saved. It's because of his fides qua creditor and fides qua creditor that you are saved. Book of Galatians tells us that. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, it reads, uh, and Paul here is uh, talking, uh, speaking to Jews and uh, Gentiles at the same time. He says, For we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. So you see, it's all about Jesus and his faithfulness. We're justified by his faithfulness. We are forgiven by his faithfulness. He had earned that. And it is because of his faithfulness that we are saved. We are justified because he is good enough. This is the difference when we talk about uh, our fetus qua creditor and our fetus qua creditor. When it comes to Christ, he had both. Being God, he is the one who saves us, gives us grace, and is the one by which we believe. And he is also the one in which we believe and we confess. So without him, Abraham could not have had faith. He could not have had, he could not have been justified. It had to be given to him 
There is none that are righteous. So anytime you talk with someone, and especially a Christian, and as Christians, sometimes this is hard to hear. We tend to remember when we chose Christ. We came, tend to remember when we decided, when we walked down the aisle, when we did this. Maybe we should start saying, I remember when I came to the realization that Christ saved me. Past tense. Because, as Paul's illustrated here in Romans and in Galatians, this is the way God's always done it. He has always saved in this way, by declaring people righteous, by forgiving of their sins. He said that's what he was going to do in the book of Genesis. He did it. A lot of people look at the Old Testament and say, well, no, they were saved through sacrifice and the forgiving of sins with the burnt offerings. And, you know, their sins would go into the animal, into the scapegoat. You know, God would, you know consume their sins in the fire and take it upon himself and, and, and those sort of things. Illustratively, that's what was going on. But it was a shadow of what was to come, a shadow of something better. They knew that it really didn't happen. They knew that they weren't really magically putting their sins into an animal and that it was just going all the way up the chain from the local priest to the regional priest to the high priest. They knew that wasn't taking, that wasn't happening. The people may have thought that was, uh, but theologically, they knew that that wasn't what was going on. And you can see that in the writings of the prophets. Um, a lot of them have, have, have written that, you know, these uh, festivals that you have and the sacrifices that you make, they are a stench in, in my nostrils, says the Lord. They know that it's, it's not really doing anything because the heart is not there. And the heart is not there because God hasn't put in it into them. They even say that there will come a day when God will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And they talk about this, but the point is that God saves the exact same way all through history. He doesn't change. He's immutable. Talked about that word earlier. So it becomes difficult at times when our experience is going against the reality of what God says. Now, how can that be? How can it be that if we're given this faith by God and it's a perfect faith, miraculous in this sense, why doesn't it hold? Why, why doesn't it change us? Well, I would say in some ways it does. It's not that it completely doesn't problem that we have is that we live in a sinful fallen world. And whenever a miracle is performed, natural laws still take over. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but he still died. Just because the miracle had been performed doesn't mean it defies the natural laws that we live in. Christ turned water into wine. If that wine was left out, it would sour, become vinegar, whatever wine does. I'm not sure. But the point is, is that it wouldn't remain wine forever. When God gives us something, natural forces will take over and there will be a type of degradation that happens. There will be natural effects that, that, that take place. 
So we have to understand this, that the faith that we're given is given by God and it's the faith that saves us. It's the faith that has saved us, but it's the faith that is saving us and the faith that's going to save us. It's all the same because it's the faithfulness of Christ for his sake that we are saved. I want to thank you for listening to Theology Pit. I want to thank you for being uh, a part of this. I think I'm going to put a stop right here. We're coming up to the hour mark. I don't want this to go beyond an hour. I want to try and keep all these podcasts, you know, around an hour long, maybe. Maybe they'll go longer. Maybe they won't, but, but roughly. I think it's a good amount of time for people to pay attention to get enough information in. Please check out my website, samsonstick.com. You can make donations there. I would really appreciate that, even if it's just a dollar. The donation is not so much, you know, uh, money for me as it is as recognition that what I'm doing has value and that it's valuable to you. I'm going to keep doing this. This is a ministry. This is something that I love, things I love talking about. But I want to start in this place with salvation. A lot of people have said, well, why don't you start with the Bible? Why don't you start with epistemology, the study of how we come to know what truth is? Why don't you discuss atheism, discuss the arguments for God's existence? Justification is the hinge point of Christianity. The gospel lives and dies on this. Without this understanding of justification, of the resurrection, of Christ's atonement, of salvation, our faith is useless. It's pointless. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, none of us would be, that we should be pitied because not only are we going around as blasphemers saying God said something that he didn't say, but we are also still dead in our sins and we're living horribly. You know, we're being persecuted in in lots of places in the world, not here in America, you know, um, Starbucks not putting snowflakes on their cup is not persecution, but opening the pit like this and discussing salvation, discussing what it means. I think this is a good place for us to be right now. I'm going to talk more about this. I'm going to talk about um, salvation in history. Um, Did the early church believe this? Because again, this is something that was articulated in the 16th century, but it's the way that God's always done things. So if this is so important, why didn't people know about it right off the bat? I would argue that they did. I would argue that they, they did before, but largely... As we said before, what the whole, the big group believes and what they say might not be the best articulation of what actually is in my illustrations from the beginning of the podcast. So we're going to go back and look that even though you can be right, you could actually deny the doctrine of justification and it would still apply to you. It's like gravity. You can deny gravity, but it still applies to you. Justification is the same way. You could say I'm completely wrong and that we are not justified by faith alone, but you are still justified by faith alone. Faithfulness of Christ, 
it's still applied to you. It's still given to you. It's the faith by which you believe. If you believe, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, fides qua creditor, faith by which it is believed, that's what you have. What you express is your fides qua creditor. So on the next Theology Pit broadcast, we are going to keep this going with salvation, and we're going to historically look back at the different ways people viewed the atonement and the different ways they looked at how the atonement is applied to us. We're going to look at the recapitulation view of the atonement, the ransom the Satan theory of the atonement. We will touch back more on the uh, sacramental system, uh, the sanative view. We'll touch more on the uh, forensic declaration, the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement, um, the free will view, the free grace view, the lordship salvation view. We'll discuss all those different things. And I think that by setting our baseline here, you kind of have an understanding that all of these people and all of these views, even if you consider them wrong, it doesn't make people any less Christian doesn't make them any less saved, past tense, being saved, present tense, and will be saved, future tense. A lot of times in Christianity, that's where we fall. We look at them and say, well, they don't articulate it just like I do, so therefore they are not saved. When I read statements of faith in churches that say, you must believe that you are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, I always ask if I don't hold to that, that doctrine, am I still saved? Some would say, well, no, you can't be saved. And by doing so, they do violence to that doctrine. They actually deny it. Some would say, well, this articulation isn't necessary, but we hold to this in this church because it's good for the health of our church. And that I agree with. I think proper doctrine is good for the health of the church. Visit the website, samsonstick.com, and it's now time to close down the pit.